And welcome everyone to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. Today I am joined by Alex Coons, good friend, former SEAL, co-founder and CEO of Frog Fuel, which, if you didn't know, was the biggest sponsor of the 777 expedition where we just set four world records, uh, the tandem for six continents, the sports for six continents, and then the same two records for seven continents. Alex, what's going on, man? Not much, man. Mike, I appreciate you having me on. Um, it's uh, interesting weather here in Texas, having to deal with a few tornadoes, but finally made it down. Yeah, and for the audience listening, it's uh, what's, what's the date here? It's the uh, the 3rd of March. Of course, this probably won't come out for about four weeks, but we had uh, uh, tornado, tornadoes in the Dallas area. George Silva, who was supposed to be with us, uh, unfortunately had some damage on the property, so couldn't make it down, but yeah. I'm glad you uh, made it down. Texas has had some uh, strange weather. Yeah, Let's absolutely. Go around. Every, it's like, every day it's changing. Yeah, it's like 20 degrees or it's 80 degrees. We can't find uh, in between. Well, man, for the uh, the audience, you've got an interesting uh, background. Um, just, you know, where were you born and raised, then eventually into the SEAL teams? Yeah, so born and raised uh, Tucson, Arizona. Or, well, excuse me, born in Massachusetts. Uh, my father was actually a um, flight surgeon. So we went from Massachusetts to Tucson, where he worked out at Davis Monthan Air Force Base, and then he became the lead doc over at Top Gun for a while. So military, military, okay, yeah, career, and then um, yeah, career. Uh, well, he now he left um, around ten years, and then he went into the reserves for mm-hmm. I think his last twelve or so. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I moved went was in Tucson, was in college actually for med school, and I think I've shared the story before. It's kind of interesting. Um, when I applied for med school, I got accepted, and it was at that time my father, who used to run a private practice, because he really believed in really helping people and doing the right thing, and he came up to me one day and said, listen, I want to talk to you about your career choice, and he said, listen, I, I know you want to follow on my footsteps, because you've been a part of my practice, you're always helping me out, he goes, but I want to tell you that the future of healthcare is not going to be what it once was, especially with managed healthcare." He says it's really going to be about, not about proper diagnosis, but it's going to be about prescription. And he says, I'm telling you this because I don't think you're going to be happy with that, that career. And so I, you know, I always trusted my father and I made a career change. So I went into computer science, went into engineering and just didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was one day I was walking down the campus at the University of Arizona and I almost ran into this guy with a khaki uniform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, and I looked up, but I could see this big gold emblem on his chest. I had no idea what it was at the time. Didn't even know what special operations of the SEAL teams were. And he kind of stopped me. He said, hey, listen, you have five minutes to talk. And I said, sure. And he says, well, you know, I wanted to talk to you because you don't look like you're really happy with, you know, with, um, you know, what you want to do. And I'm, you know, first thought, I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. You know, what, what does he know about me? And so, you know, the, the conversation progressed and, you know, what it ended with is he said, do you want to do the hardest fucking thing you'll ever do in your life? And it was literally at that moment, I said, I want to go do this fucking job. But that was a difficult choice for me because, you know, my father's German, my mother's Chinese, and she has a very tradition, she was raised very traditionally and their outlook on life is you're a doctor, or you're a lawyer, or you're nothing. And so she pretty much pushed God, our that career is a path. brutal culture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is a, yeah. And that's how tiger, they raise their children. Tiger mom. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And um, 
So the thing about it is I knew what I wanted to do, um, but I also knew that when I went home and told my mother I was going to drop out of college and go to the SEAL teams, she would disown me. And so I did. I went home and I said, Mom, I'm dropping out of college. I want to go do this thing. She didn't know what it was. She just knew it was the military. And she says, well, if you quit college, you're no longer my son. And I said, okay, I guess I'm no longer your son. And I left. And so... Uh, and, and your dad knew in the military knew what the SEALs were. He's like, hey, it's, he, it's... he knew about them. He didn't know, you know, he knew... There were SEALs, but he never really knew what they did. And, um, but, you know, and, I, and I, of course, I don't want to make my mom sound to be this evil person because at some point down the road, she did support me, right? She didn't She's wildly disown proud. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was my, that's what kind of ultimately, um, that's how my career started. I did uh, 10 years at SEAL Team 1, and I actually got out pre-9-11, and then, and I was working in the corporate world doing cybersecurity for, so my first job was actually building the next generation Navy Marine Corps uh, is internet. So it's everything from their cybersecurity infrastructure, their intrusion what, detection. What, what year is this, though? This has to be, what, 99? That was 2001. 01. 2001. And then... When, when did you get out? 2001. April 2001. Yeah. And so I so I was working, and I remember it was about, I think, 04? Or no, no, 9-11, obviously. Um, I'm sitting in the... I'm sitting in our big network operations center, which we can monitor hackers and all this other crap. And, and on the left hand of the screens were the Twin Towers. And I'm watching these planes fly into the towers, and I'm like, fuck, you know, i got to go do something here. So at the time, I actually had a kid with, um, you know, my, it's a former girlfriend. I wasn't married at the time. And we were going through... Um, a custody battle because she was she actually had a drug addiction and uh so i i had like before this kind of happened i just said fuck it i need to go do something here and so i called jeff byers my partner and i said yeah. hey dude you, you know you're you're working doing contract work for the agency how can i get into this and go do it and so i left corporate work and and uh deployed to afghanistan during oef for about three years um, and, th and this is when the pay was the, the pay, dollar, the, right? yeah, the pay was good, and I, and, and as a matter of fact, my long-term goal is I really wanted to go into Ground Branch, and I had met uh, Billy Staff at the time, who was running running the group, um, and he said, hey, you know, come and apply. Well, when I got back to the States on a rotation, it, this is when, you know, I found out, uh, you know, my ex had a drug addiction problem because I had no money in my account. She had spent everything I'd made overseas, and so... I wanted to cut that off at that point, but you know it was it was a difficult decision I had to make because I had to take full custody of my son because of her addiction, and the one reason, the only reason that she had of winning custody being the mother was the fact that I was never home. Yes. So yep. so that was really the turning the second turning point for me. It's like, hey, are you really going to continue going downrange and fucking running around with a gun, or are you just are you going to just put your head down and now focus on a new career? And so at that point, I just said, you know what, I've got a son, I've got to take care of him, and then I've really got to I got to stop letting these things distract me and just focus on on learning a new skill set and and uh, being good at it. And so I went into uh, you know everything from you know I worked at three different Fortune two hundred and fifty companies, climbing ladders, so to say. I worked at Semper Energy. I built their risk management program, everything from cybersecurity, audit compliance to all their technology infrastructure. Did that for about seven years. And then I worked at a 
mergers and acquisition firm in LA um, for about uh, a year on the weekends. And then uh, started a clothing company with my brother and sister uh, while I was at Sempra. And then it was about six years ago I started Frog Fuel. So 2012. 2000, 2012, we filed for licenses, but we really didn't start the company until about 2014. So two years of testing, research, product development. development. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, background. It's, it's amazing the SEAL got you to, you got into your mind. That yeah. quickly. Uh, did yeah. you ever do that recruiting duty? No. Uh, uh, Will, Will, have you ever been re- approached by a uh, recruiter? Yeah, in high school. In high school? For sure. What, what, were your, what was your impression? I'm not from a rural town, so it's like everybody, half of my people that I knew would go to the military. Yeah. So, I mean, you just kind of walk into a room and you let them talk to you for a little bit yeah. with a couple brochures and then you talk it, about it with yeah. I, Recruiters don't have the best reputation within the military. No, but I got got lucky because at at that time that I actually went in is when they started the Die Fair program. In in what year is this? That was um, 91. 89, no, 89. No, 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 yeah, it was 90 to 91 is when they... Did you come in before or after the first uh, Gulf War? uh, After the, before the first Gulf War. No kidding. Yeah, so 80... Were Were you at a team? By the time the Gulf no, no. I w- just when the Gulf War was ending, I just checked into Team One. So we all got the fucking little defense ribbon, little ribbon without yeah, any yeah, yeah. like little combat deployment type thing did, on it. it was did Team One say or was it Team Three? Team said, One had guys over there, did yeah, they? and they had a couple guys over at Somalia too. I th- but I think Team Five had had the larger presence in Somalia. Yeah. It's when Fap and Gardner were on sniper yeah. duty out there during the extraction and stuff. You know, funny enough, those like for those guys that got. The, the, the benefit of uh, of a deployment uh, or you know quick little combat yeah. became like the all stars the only ones with stories and now like those stories were totally trumped by the global war in terror oh yeah of course yeah, yeah but it's, yeah, yeah, yeah you're a product of your time that's uh yeah that's issue I did that recruiting duty it was in, not only did I do it I did it in uh, the Bay Area yeah in ninety nine as a corporal in the Marine Corps it was awful it was awful having to go to campuses and just talk to students and they just San Francisco is not exactly a hotbed of uh, military recruitment. No, it yeah. was uh, it was awful, especially when they'd send me to the mall. They'd be like, "Go to the mall and find." It was just not my not my style, man. Um, that that's a career leap from building all this infrastructure, especially on the technology side, to yep. a let's say very medical grade protein. Yeah, it, it, it is, but a lot of those are, I, I feel like, are, you know, even though I think corporate career doesn't really recognize the um, um, the types of skills that you acquire in the military, and they don't really, um, they don't really convert over to civilian job from their perspective, but, or translate. You're talking so, like actual hard skills. Actual hard skills. and, and soft rea- skills. Right, and the reality is, I, you know, I went from knowing nothing about cybersecurity to being a nationally recognized expert in cybersecurity in about five years. I mean, I, I was actually the subject matter expert for the uh, Obama and uh, Senator McCain's national cybersecurity bill. I helped uh, NIST develop their ISO standards for risk management. So, I mean, and, and, the, and the reason for that is when you look at the types of threats that you're dealing with in cybersecurity, all the things that you learn in the SEAL team directly translate over to that side. Everything from gathering intelligence to trying to figure out who's trying to penetrate your networks, how they're trying to do it, and how to put up a defense or put up an offense. And so it's, um, 
a lot of the skills I learned as a team easily translated into cybersecurity. All I had to do is think about it. Okay, I'm not on a standing on a ground anymore. I'm in a cyberspace, but yet I'm trying to protect a facility. I'm trying to protect an asset, and I have bad actors trying to break in or destroy that asset. And so, so they, so when you start thinking about it from in relating cybersecurity to a physical world, then it's very easy to start figuring out how do I build layers of defense? How do I build intelligence? How do I build communications? And how do I protect networks? And, and not only to something that is very similar, but to also, again, a medical grade protein, yeah. you and Jeff have taken those, those lessons that, you know, I would say for those special operations guys, or, or even in coming out of the conventional military, because your CMO is a, is a badass from West Point, yeah. uh, Aaron, if you have the ability and you're not as dog, dogmatic that it's got to be this way, the way the SEALs or the military ran, ran things, but you can take the soft skills, you can take the principles from planning all the way to execution and follow through, then you're going to be wildly su- successful in the, uh, the private sector. I think you're an example of that. Um, you know, you walk through, Andy Stuff is an example of that. Glenn Cowan mm-hmm. is great, and I know you're friends with Glenn, our, our lone Canadian on the 777 team. He likes to say that venture capital is a special operations. Mm-hmm. It's taking limited resources, knowing where to impl- uh, deploy them, yeah. At the right time, uh, the right companies uh, pouring into them and ultimately uh, exploiting them as much as, well, exploiting, executing, building. And uh, I, I found that to be true. What, who is the best, and th- th- this may be two different people, who is the best mentor or leader you ever served with in the SEAL teams? Uh, Captain Fitzgerald. So uh, Fitzgerald was a team one. And an admiral, right? Uh, I, th- I, th- I don't know if he ever made it to admiral, but he, he became the CEO, and why he stood out for me is he became... Vietnam era, I'm assuming? I don't think he's Vietnam era. No, he was probably in his, when I was there, late 40s. Kind of a uh, stocky, blonde-headed... But would, would, would have been post, post tail end of Vietnam, yeah, just didn't serve. Okay. T- tail end of Vietnam. Um, but, you know, what, what stood out for me with him is he was the guy who really wanted to push the boundaries of Team One's capabilities. And he just said, you know... Here, like, you know, for example, um, when we, st- we were doing IADs, everything was really about safety too much, too much safety. And so it, I remember it changed. This next platoon I got into, we were doing just basic IAD training. And next thing you know, instructors are saying, just lay out on the dirt. And they start firing rounds right over our head. And they said, put your head up. We want you to, we want you to know what it sounds like when the crack of a bullet's flying, you know, um, a foot above your head. And they had us doing things like getting in a ditch and your I mean, your the ditch is here and your head's right here and they're M60 straight from the ditch and rocks are flying up and hitting you. And the, my point is the training became more realistic because they wanted us to know what it would be like to actually get shot at. And so one of the things that Fitzgerald did was he, you know, he, he said, okay, we, we absolutely are a waterborne unit, so we have to be the best at it. So I want to know what the feasibility is of diving, actually diving and performing operations with communication gear and all this shit. And so, of course, he passed this down to our platoon, and everybody's like, fuck, dude, you know, we got to dive with all this fucking comm gear and everything. It's, you know, like, this is crazy. And because we've never done anything like that. And so I remember the day we showed up for the dive, we're trying to kit everything up, double waterproof, duct tape, and you already know the shit, the, the you know, the submersible bags. Mm-hmm. They're, they're more than likely going to fucking open mm-hmm. up and fuck up mm-hmm. all your comm gear. So the cool thing about it is we showed up, and he was down there. He showed up in his dive gear. Um, 
he had his wetsuit on and you know he said i'm going to join your platoon uh i'm not a leader i'm one of the boys and i want you guys to tell me what to do and what he said to us is he says i am never going to push down a policy down to the lowest level of my units without knowing that i can do it myself and that really stood out for me i mean i at that point that's when i learned the difference between senior management and leadership you know managers push down policies and just expect people to abide by them a leader is the one who will never expect somebody to abide by a policy he or she wouldn't themselves and he had a meaning meaning meaningful impact because i felt like he was really pushing the boundaries of our training and our capabilities but at the same time he was out there looking at the stuff and saying okay is this really practical or is i'm am i just doing dumb shit and just dumb ideas and and I, he's the one guy I absolutely remember in my whole career. And him and the Hulk, the Hulk, which was, uh, um, I always said the Hulk. He's, he's a former, he was the 91-92, he was the uh, admiral for Group 1, uh, Vietnam vet. He always drove a Corvette. Um, of course he did. Yeah, he was a good guy, uh, awesome guy. Um, Baby, the Hulk being big, big dude. Big dude, yeah. I, I, I don't know why I'm not. I'm drawing a mind blank yeah. his name. Football player, or just. I think just he was a football player. Yeah. Academy. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good guy. Um, but you know, Vietnam era guys were good. They were they were very black and white. You know, it wasn't there wasn't gray area with them. It's like you know, it, I, I like that. I liked you know when you got direction, there wasn't a lot of bullshit in between. It's like this is yeah. what I expect of you, and you know, you you do it. I, I'm, I'm assuming that's a, that was a pretty serious generation. It's just yeah, it was probably it, bitterness it, coming off that war and just you know it, it was with. it was good and bad. <laughs> um, you know, I to be honest with you, when I left Team One, I I let I didn't leave. Um, from a good perspective, because it, they were so strict at Team One that they used to have this policy at in training cells. So training cells, just the you know, like the senior guys. And, and not to catch you off, but yeah. in, in Will uh, Seal Team One was known as uh, Stalag One, Stal, yeah, or Stalingrad. Yeah. So yeah. they always uh, they always had uh, very tight haircuts. I, and not mm-hmm. Marine. I mean, tighter for for the yeah. seals, and uh, they were always very strict with your uh, uniform oh, yeah. standards. But it, it is yeah. hence. Uh, relaxed but it actually came to the point that team one ha- had to be sort of cleaned out yeah in the current admiral uh okay i'm gonna butcher his name i think it's keith richards yeah or, or wait, wait, keith davids yeah. i think keith davids came in and, uh, and sort of restood it up i mean for for the seal teams that's that's a bump yeah. in the road yeah it, it kind of it, it definitely the culture changed a lot and some things were for the worst you know like one of the policies they had for training cell is when you were out training platoons on advanced tactics is that you couldn't fraternize with the platoons and that was one of the stupidest rules because I've already I had already done five cruises by then, and so I'm like I I'd work with eighty percent of these guys, right? And so it was you know and the reason I had a bad taste in my mouth the the culture was we were we were out in Fort Chaffee I think, and um, you know a guy named Brad I won't say his last name but somehow he got into something with somebody in the bar and next thing you know I'm watching this guy run up behind him this guy's friend that Brad's obviously going to get a fight with and he's got this wine bottle in his hand mm. and he's about to club him in the back of the head with it. And so, of course, I'm not going to let that happen. So I stood up, lit this dude up, and, and uh, when I got back to Team 1, they kicked me out of training cell because because I should have never been in the bar with the platoon. And so after that, I was kind of like, you know, fuck you guys. Um, I liked a lot of the dudes there, but it's just I felt like the 
the leadership, some of the some of the leadership team at the point had really uh, peacetime. You know, it's kind of peacetime antics when you have nothing to do. You start you start with a lot of bullshit. Yeah, I could agree, but I, I didn't learn that until about two thousand thirteen ish. Yeah, because I came in in ninety eight, yeah, which yeah. was was right in the peacetime. And, uh, you know, I had fun with the boys because I knew nothing else. That was yeah. I, I didn't know anything about the military, so I, that's what I thought it was. But war was definitely, you had a lot more authority and responsibility yeah. to, to make decisions at your, your level. And so I enjoyed that for the, the, the extent of my almost entire career. And then all of a sudden, as we started to, I don't want to say um, reduce combat operations, it felt like fingers were going back in pots. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, decisions I was able to make as a O2E could I couldn't more. make as an 04 at JSOC. And, and that got uh, frustrating. You, you know, it's it's interesting that usually your last leadership experience with any organization shapes your perception of it. Oh, of course. And I had a bad leadership experience. My last uh, uh, experience in the, in the SEAL teams, I don't want to say self-inflicted. Uh, they, they moved me into a position to deal with a personality who was absolutely a warfighter. Um, but difficult to deal with, and I respected, but we just didn't get along. Sure. Um, but I, I think as I've had time to reflect, it's, you know, that's one incident. I look at all the good times oh, I had course. in the SEAL teams, all yeah. the great leaders I yeah. worked for. Yeah. Uh, but there are some bad leaders. Yeah. And for an organization that teaches leadership for a living, SEALs, military, how it misses with certain individuals or they have a uh, agenda for, for some reason. Um, well, Ad- Admiral Smith, years ago, and it was like 19... 19- Recently passed within yeah. the last like three years. Yeah, right? it was 1993. Um, we had this big command uh, group one, group two meeting, and it was the, we were specifically talking about uh, you know why we didn't have our own SOCOM rating and why Admiral Smith was not pushing for that. And he he made it very evident. He said, "Listen, there's a reason why I'm not doing this because he goes, I feel like if we create our own SOCOM rating, we're going to have." little groupy type things and limited billets. And what's going to happen is there's going to be good old boy fractions and networks, and you're not going to get promoted unless you're part of that. And he goes, I don't want the teams to turn into a, you know, into a political structure. He called it back then, and which is the reason why he never supported it for many years. And then, you know, it, but, you know, I, I also feel like things like that will work themselves out. I mean, the army has obviously proven that through, through its organization, right? They, they probably had a lot of political infighting when they first, 20 years of having their own ratings and structures, but they eventually resolve those issues over time. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad move, but very clearly, uh, you know, leadership at the time felt like it would create a lot of infighting, and that's the reason why they didn't want to do it. The the SEALs were not what they are today Mm -hmm. back then, and they were still a red-headed stepchild in a lot of ways to the Navy, Yeah, and we didn't have a seat at the table. Now I think we have more admirals per capita than any other community in the uh, the Navy, but um, you, you mentioned about uh, Fitzgerald do, doing realistic training, shooting live rounds just mm-hmm. over your heads. Could you imagine that video coming out today? There would be yeah. oh, an yeah. outcry. Yeah. Well, and one of, one of the incidents, too, we were, doing, uh, we were doing an assault formation where we had uh, an elevated group, and we were doing a walking um, assault on the target. And this is just training. But I ended up getting hit, shot in the back with a 40 mic mic. And it didn't go off because the range proximity, but it knocked me right on my fucking face. And I thought somebody hit me with a fucking bat. That's how hard it hit me. And, uh, and of course, we never said anything about that. But 
Do I look back and say, you know, I would have done things differently? No, because I probably learned in that platoon alone, I learned more, uh, more, tra- more realistic training than I ever had in my entire career. I felt like, you know, the, the level um, of performance was so much higher, you know, and the expectations were higher. And I, I enjoyed it, quite frankly. They have to be. Yep. There, there's, there's no organization that's going to replicate such a high standard yep. as the U.S. Special Operations community. Mm-hmm. And it's cutthroat. Yeah. We know it's cutthroat. Yeah. And a lot of people can't thrive in that environment because, and I know Will has been learning a lot, um, you will be called out quickly. Oh, yeah. And in sometimes in what people would think is an unprofessional and untactful uh, manner, and maybe it is on, I hate to say civilian terms, but it's part of the process we utilize to make sure that we're policing our own and that, that yeah. standard does move. What's, what's the phrase? Standards move one inch at a time. Yeah. And before you know yeah. it, you, yeah. you don't have standards at all. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, it's still to this day, if somebody young asked me, should I join the military? My answer is 100% absolutely yes. Of course, yeah. And I know right now they're struggling with recruitment, but I could not imagine who I would be today without the trials and tribulations that the military put me through or yeah. provided me some of the most world-class coaching and mentoring and leadership oh, of course. that I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned something about, you know, Inspire. Uh, I read a great article from uh, God, Tom Kolditz. Try pulling this up, Will. Uh, General Tom Kolditz, uh, uh, military leadership. But he said, and I love this, you know, the reason that the military per capita turns out, I want to be cautious here, I don't want to say better leaders, but more leaders is one, the military is, it's not, you know, we're not tactically the greatest, but we produce the best leaders. You look at World War II, you could argue that the Germans were one not 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 only tactically uh, superior to us, mm-hmm. uh, they were also combat hardened. Oh yeah. Because uh, but still, our guys through just exceptional leadership yeah. uh, overcame those those challenges. But he talked about how the dominant form of leadership within the military is transformational leadership, mm-hmm. and he defined it as the ability to inspire confidence and trust, turning the compliant into the willing. And as you think back to those great leaders, you're like, damn, dude, I would follow that motherfucker to the ends of the year. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some guys you feel like you would, and there's other guys that you're like, I just wouldn't follow this guy anywhere. <laughs> yeah, but you do. Yeah, you, you do. do. You do, because of, I, I, I would argue that's more about the structure and hierarchy than the military. Yeah. You don't have a choice, right? But you, I, I think that you, when you're more passionate and more inspired by people, then you tend to um, work harder. It, um, you know, you, it, it's, I feel like, if, if you're following somebody because you feel like you have a choice and you believe them enough, then I feel like it's a, it's a different, um, you know, the, the mentality is different, right? You work harder. You're more passionate about what you're trying to do as opposed to just following somebody because you have no respect for them because you have to. Yeah, I guess from, from the civilian sector, you have a choice. You, could, you yeah. can always leave. In the military, once you've signed a contract for six years, you're, you're in. But yeah. uh, regardless, what I, what I have seen is when and there were plenty of bad leaders, platoon commanders, bad chiefs. Yeah. where the boys, middle-level management, stepped up and tampened down their negative impact or at least kept the guys focused yeah. on uh, on the mission yeah. uh, and sort of, yeah, again, assaged uh, whatever impact that person could have. But, I mean, it's no, no different than the, uh, the military. I was just on Fox News. They said, hey, what about woke, this woke culture, you know, uh, being forced upon the, uh, the military? And my answer was, I wouldn't worry about it too much. The, the military has lived through what something like 40 plus presidents and mm-hmm. the needle never moves 
too far from the right or to, to the yeah. left where even if woke policies are being forced in the military, we push so much authority and responsibility down to the lower, lower levels. They keep the guys focused on the mission, being lethal, yeah. being ready, in uh, in in a, a superior position compared to our uh, our enemy combatants, and if there's policies, they 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 make sure they're in compliance and they move on. Yeah, and, and that whole the you know whole phrase wokeness. I mean, this isn't the first time it's happened. It's happened no. in history, and what typically I I feel like resets that is when we actually go into conflict. Because when you look at the time from when we, we went into conflict in Afghanistan, how many admirals and generals were removed from position because they didn't know what the fuck they were doing, right? They came from a culture that was not a warfighter's culture. And as a result, you know, we wanted to kick ass. So they ended up finding the right leaders to lead mm -hmm. the units into combat. So I feel, to your point, I agree with you. I think it's just an ever-changing thing, right? It's a cycle. And the military absolutely will outlive it. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you, you, the other point of uh, getting uh, relieved for protecting a buddy in the bar. It's that still to this day, you know, I had a great. Uh, he's an admiral now, and I don't want to mention his name, but he was a great commander, great mentor of mine. He said, "I don't know at one point the public's going to realize we're not in the the, the process or, or uh, profession of creating Boy Scouts. Yeah, we create the number one man through the door and for the audience. What that means is when you enter a house." You can put a number on everyone who enters the door. The first guy through the threshold, the second, the third, the fourth. Usually we enter rooms in two to four, depending on the size of the room or the configuration. But in uh, that that one man has a high probability of being shot at. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what it is. When you put a SEAL platoon in a bar, there was always a drunk guy that thought it would be a good idea to like mess yeah. with one. Yeah. It's the strangest. Yeah. Knowing who we are, it's the strangest phenomena. And I've seen it like, uh, again, I'm not going to use his name, but uh, Will's met him. You may have as well. Uh, let's just call him Jay. Played football at the University of Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, and somehow, despite his size, made it through buds. And is a massive dude. Only dude I've ever seen that would kick, uh, kicked open a uh, steel double-bolted uh, door wow. with a, uh, a mule kick. But like clockwork, 6'4", about 270. Jesus, guys at the bar deal. that were drunk would just come and try to pick fights with him. <laughs> he would just be looking. He was like, what the fuck? He's like, are you guys, is this a joke? He's like, like am, I be, am, am I a punchline here? Um and, and some guys ended up getting knocked out, but um, let's, uh, let's let, I want to transition. So again, you're, you're in the risk management, uh, cybersecurity world. You and Jeff are like, Hey, let's break off and let's do a, was it, did you know it was protein? Yeah. So uh, where it originally started, to be honest with you is Jeff and I actually, so Jeff, I think was in the teams for four years. So he did a couple cruises. So he was in my second platoon. Okay. And, um, it was kind of funny. I mean, Jeff and I were friends, but I would argue our relationship was probably more contentious than anything because we were always trying to one-up each other. So for us, every time we were on the range, it was like him and I were, who's, who's the best? When we're running, who's the best? And so we're always, you know, contentious meaning that it's like, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. And we, we always, we acted like that. And so, you know, we always had this idea, like in the back of our heads, and we talked about it when we were in Afghanistan, like, you know, if we started this company, could we make something that didn't exist in the marketplace? And then, uh, you know, then the op opportunity presented itself to do something. And I was already doing corporate work. Jeff didn't have experience. He was still downrange working for um, the agency at the time. And he just said, listen, man, I don't really want to continue fucking doing this anymore. He goes, yeah. you know, are, do, you, do you want to get this? What do you think about, you know, getting this company off the ground? And I said, sure, let's fucking do it. And so we did. 
And so two years of research into how do you guys, because the, the market is so freaking saturated with protein. Yeah. yeah. And I think to a lot of average consumers, protein is protein is protein, but it's yeah. not. So, I mean, to differentiate a protein, that, that had to be wildly. It, it was hard. Yeah, it was really hard. But our strategy was really because when you when you looked at the market, yes, the protein market for human performance is really largely saturated. So, we had to think about it from a strategic perspective. How do we educate a consumer that's already brand loyal? And so what we knew was at that time, there were a lot of products with supplement labels making claims, but there was no research to back those claims. So what we did is we decided to start with our medical brand first because we wanted to, we wanted everybody to know we were a true clinical brand that we're actually which is Which is Pro-T-Gold. Pro-T-Gold. Pro-T-Gold, yeah. which, which your primary client for Pro-T-Gold is actual medical facilities. Medical yeah. facilities yeah. for post-surgery so we use it for bariatric surgery, post-surgical post-surgi- wound care, dialysis, chemotherapy, um, we have arthritis treatment. Um, we use it for treating burns. I mean, there's about 14 different medical indications we use that product for. And that product is actually prob- – a lot of people don't know, and they think Frog Fuel is our larger brand. Through up uh, Protein Gold. Oh, yeah. But uh, Frog uh, Protein Gold actually is our larger brand. It's just that most people don't see it because it's in a medical facility. How, how many, for Pro-T Gold, how many products do you have? Two or three? We have one formula, pretty much, available in liquid, powder, and two flavors. Um, and, and what's the, I mean, the major ingredients? Collagen protein. Collagen protein. Yep. yep. And we manufacture our own collagen protein here in the United States. And when you look at like 80% of the collagen market, a lot of it's procured from one overseas manufacturer. Um, and... It's not really a unique product, and that's where we have the benefit is when we developed our own product, we had the ability to create our own protein molecule. We're not sourcing it from somebody else and throwing it in a bag or a box or a bottle and saying, we've got a unique product. No, we truly do because we could design the amino acid structure based on real-world application, and, um, and that's what we did, and we actually also have real-world studies, everything from post-surgical wound healing to how quickly our product digests in the body to the performance gains that our product. So, so let me ask you that because on this, it says hundred percent protein. Uh, and we, we took this all of triple seven leading up to it. And, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the guys who were like, I took it for 30 days and my joints yeah. felt better. Uh, 100% protein digestible in less than 15 minutes. Uh, which to me, I, I guess I would ask you, okay. That, I mean, that sounds pretty awesome, but compared to, you know, that typical protein, collagen yeah. uh, powder I'm putting in, what, what's the difference? That usually takes, what, an hour? At, uh, 90, uh, 60 to 90 minutes, typically. And, and the best way to explain it is that the reason why our product's different is because we actually manufacture the protein molecule down to a size of like 2,500 Daltons, which the, to give you an idea, human the pores in a human digestive system can roughly absorb a molecule roughly 4,000 Daltons or smaller. So we're half the size that can be absorbed. So we go right into the bloodstream. Now you compare that with like a hydrolyzed whey, 18,000 Daltons. A standard collagen protein molecule is 30,000 Daltons, which means that the acids in your mouth or the, the enzymes in your mouth and the acids in your stomach have to break that molecule down multiple times before it can actually be absorbed in your bloodstream. And most of the time with other proteins, that doesn't happen until it gets down to your uh, intestines, mm-hmm. where for us, the majority of absorption happens within the, the mouth and the stomach. Interesting. 
in, in, so it's all in the process of getting it, yep. the, the protein molecule as small as, uh, as possible. And yeah, so and, and there's a limit to that because mm-hmm. if you start if you start going anything below two thousand daltons, now what happens is you're actually breaking apart the amino acids themselves. And so, I mean, that's something we do want to test down the road. But you know, the theory here that we have is that well, if you break down the actual amino acid itself, then technically you're kind of eliminating the effectiveness of that amino acid. And that's a theory. We don't know if that's true because we haven't tested it yet. But that's one of the things we want to look at down the road. Interesting. You and Jeff. Definitely don't. I mean, I know you had an interest in, in the medical field. You know, you guys don't come from a chemistry background. I mean, so you went out and found subject matter experts, brought them in, and so we. What we started with is looking at research papers that were already conducted. Mm-hmm. Um, so major research by universities, and the the first thing we actually noticed is that a lot of the research in the United States at that time, so around 2012, was really biased. It was biased on way. Um, there's a there's actually a study that was conducted and it's actually used as the basis for prescribing protein for and they call it the um, I think it's the D, DSS study but it was really measuring protein absorption in children but what they use, what they did is they used that test as a way to say that if you're a person trying to gain weight you have to take your body weight in grams of protein per day and it, it was it was just a very it was done by the monopolies at that time who manufactured whey. It was old it's old science and it actually doesn't apply anymore because we've actually done a lot of studies with our product to say, you know, that demonstrates if you take any more than fifteen grams per serving, it's providing no medicinal benefit for your body. So you're really just wasting protein. And I, you know, I came from the era taking two hundred grams of protein a day. Now I take thirty maximum a day, thirty grams maximum, and I'm still maintain the same same size same weight everything else and, um, and so you're, you're for frog fuel you do have one that has what's what's the max protein 15 I, grams 15 grams yeah. that, that's what i thought zero yeah. carbs yep zero carbs one. yep these uh in particular this one is the ultra and then you got the ultra energized these are more for you want to take these during activity yep absolutely okay yep. protein carbs electrolytes and then two amino acids to increase endurance output and capacity so the, you've got triathletes and Triathletes, yeah, we power these. lifters. We had, it's all over the map. I mean, arm wrestlers, guys doing the slap. Uh, what do they call it? That's yeah. this, this is, that's got to be one of the, I, hey. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it awesome. makes no sense to me. Um, yeah, I saw some. Uh, I've seen some women get knocked out. I've seen some dudes get knocked yeah, out. Yeah, and yeah. these are big dudes. <laughs> I mean, these guys are like hulks, man. I, I think well, we've got uh, Mr. Olympia is going on right now. Or not, not Mr. Olympia. The Arnold Classic is going on right yeah, now. Yeah, right, March second. Yeah. And I know uh, what's the Jake, what's the famous YouTuber guy, J- the, the Jake Paul. I, I saw that he and Arnold yeah. were promoting one of those uh, contests at the uh, the Arnold Classic. Yeah, Arnold's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. There's some big dudes that show up there, man. I mean, you know, first time I ever met a bodybuilder was in Thailand when we actually deployed through there, and I. I came to learn. I knew I knew nothing about steroids and all that other stuff. And then what I eventually learned is a lot of these guys go open these gyms in Thailand because then they could they can juice up access, you know, have access yeah. to it, juice up and work on a gym. Um, but I mean, these guys at the level which they're pumping the stuff in their body, it's crazy. I mean, we met one guy at that time, and he was Mister Olympian, doing 12, 15 shots a day. And is and uh, it enlarges. He, he was telling us a story too. He said it enlarges heart so 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 much that he couldn't effectively pump blood to his body. So when he worked out, he could only work out for two or five minutes at a time, and then he would have to take an hour break. And then so like his whole day was 
instead of somebody like us working out for an hour and you're done, he would do these little five-minute sessions, and he'd have to take a break because he couldn't breathe. And then he would go back and drink a smoothie and then go pump iron again. But, I mean, he was massive. I mean, this guy was huge. But, you know, it's, I don't know. Not a lifestyle I'd want to live, but no, no, no. I know everyone is fresh on the Liver King. We went, we went off on the Liver King. I think one of the uh, Friday sessions, but I, I think I read accurately. He was spending ten thousand dollars on substances. Yeah, probably yeah. per month. That, that's yeah, freaking insane. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And they had that one guy. I can't remember his name, but he was a celebrity. I think he lived in Florida. He was a big time bodybuilder. Good YouTube channel. Yeah, he was. He died what six years ago? Massive cardiac arrest. At what age? I would say he's forty or under. I mean, he was young. Yeah. You, you know, it's not that I'm in that community at all, uh, but it's amazing how many guys die before they're like forty-five. Yeah. People are like, "Oh, it was so tragic." You're like, yeah. "Well, tragic." Yeah. Yes, anyone dying is tragic. It's like the guy was also like two sixty yeah. five seven yeah. uh, at like eight percent body fat. The, yeah, like yeah, this crazy, and, and again, tragic uh, nonetheless. But, but yeah, you were so you were asking the question about. I mean, sorry, I kind of deviated, there, no, no, but no. but yeah. So what we noticed is like we started looking at all these research studies in Sweden, Switzerland, and Germany, and and they were and what we noticed in the United States was predominantly whey studies, and everything overseas was pretty much they were testing pea proteins, soy proteins, collagen protein, all these other different proteins. And so that's where we educated ourselves on the different types of proteins, the different amino acid structures. And then we found the most convincing evidence came from collagen because they, um, at the time, it wasn't commercially viable. They were spending millions of dollars to perform these studies, which didn't necessarily mean you could create a product and make it commercially viable at the time. But what we noticed is they were using collagen to treat, uh, to rebuild knee joints. They mm-hmm. were using it to treat macular degeneration. Where the, Which is? Your rods and cones in your eyes mm-hmm. are dying, and it would reverse that process. Um, so the evidence was there that, that collagen truly was a superior protein. So then to your earlier question about did you hire expertise, yes, we weren't formulators. We're not chemists. So we ended up partnering with a Stanford doctor uh, mm-hmm. to actually help us formulate. And we, we basically went to him and said, these are five requirements we have to have a, in a product. Can it be done? And the answer was yes. But five, took, five requirements being driven by probably the medical yep, community. Absolutely. What they, what they want to purchase. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll tell you this. I did this for quite a while, but I would take this in the morning, the Ultra Energized, which uh, surprisingly has a little uh, – more caffeine than I expected. Yeah. And then afterwards, I would take the, the, the standard uh, frog fuel with just the 15 uh, yeah. grams of uh, protein. Yeah. Yeah, that's my staple every day. I love that product. One of the most interesting uh, observations from a couple guys is uh, they took it consistently for 30 days. Um, and they said their joints. I know Fred Williams. Mm-hmm. Fred's got to be around 55. Uh, Scott Evan community, so he's probably had his uh, share of, mm-hmm. of joint issues. But he said his joints felt great. Guys yeah. said the other, the, the yeah. very similar uh, input that their joints felt really, really good. Yeah, it's. I mean, for me, getting out of the teams, I, you know, one of my major injuries is we we were doing a sub ops, and I got uh, we were, and this was actually you could technically say it wasn't wartime, but we were actually doing a real world extraction for uh, another platoon that had some issue where a guy got stranded, stuck on an island, and so we had to. We were already in a submarine, so they actually asked us to do um, a dry deck recovery. 
And so we ended up having to get this guy, and it was amazing. The water was crystal fucking clear. It was flat, and we were just, you know, and it's beautiful when you're just cruising across. Everything was perfect and flawless. We go to the beach. We get this guy on the boat, and he's all jacked up, and we get back to the sub. We've got all four boats. We did the periscope uh, wet deck thing. The boats came lined up perfectly, and we're untying stuff. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this rogue wave about 50 feet comes out of nowhere. And, and so I'm two guys, like the two, like four guys got washed off the sub. One was Tony and myself and Tony, uh, Lena, Lena. Yeah. And I, I actually had, so at the time I had a 35 pound motor on my shoulder and I had to, we had to carry that up the, the mm-hmm. uh, mast mm-hmm. to drop it in. And the way you maneuver it, you know, you're, you're tied into a line, but you got a carabiner and that line's tied into the boat. So every few feet, you got to unclip that carabiner, clip it back in and slide this thing along. Well, just as I unclip this thing, I hear wave and, and all of a sudden I just feel like something hits me right in the face and I'm in the water and all the, all the while this is happening, the motor peeled, like took my arm and I felt my Mm. arm just go pop, real loud fucking pop. And in that process, the motor itself actually hooked onto my UDT shorts, the carabiner did. And so I'm, I I can't see anything. It's black and I'm, my ears just went pop, 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 pop. And I'm like, I'm, I'm fucking dead. I'm going to drown here. And so I'm sitting here just fucking with this thing, trying to get it off. I got my spider co out and I'm just sawing whatever I can to get this fucking motor off of me. And I, and at that point I thought I was dead. I thought I'm like, I'm just fucking done. And right when I had that thought, I just feel this release of tension. Something popped and the motor came off. Mm. I don't know if it ripped my pants or what. And so I'm just fucking kicking and kicking and kicking to, you know, I remember the first thing I, cause I couldn't tell what was up or down and I'm like, I can't see anything. I, you know, the training came in effect, blow a bubble. And so that's exactly what I did. And I, you know, I'm watching where it goes. I just start kicking my ass off and I didn't think I was going to make it cause I was probably, I don't know how deep I was, but I was deep. And I ended up just pulling my life fast. It, you know, wasn't really inflating at that point. I start kicking, kicking, kicking. And then I just start seeing like this light shrinking, 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 shrinking. And then I blacked out at some point. But at that point, I think my, my vest had enough air to float me to the surface. Cause next thing you know, I, I could f- all of a sudden I'm coming to, and I can feel this coldness on my face and I made it to the surface. But I'm like, I, I come up and I'm looking at the sub that's like way fucking down there. And we ended up losing, I think, three boats, a bunch of weapons, comm gear, all washed off the boat, um, which was kind of fucking crazy because it was, it was literally the most perfect day you could ever imagine. And it was just one wave came out of fucking nowhere. And, and that is the ocean for you. She will always, always win. Um, yeah, some crazy days at sea. Yeah. And that's, and that's like, for me, like, you know, I, I have, I literally have no muscle. And so of course, you know, the teams, you don't tell, I was just deployed and I'm like, you know, I'm not fucking telling anybody, but it's the muscle that connects my shoulder to my actual pectoral muscle. And so what it did is it balled up in my pack and I just didn't fucking tell anybody. And, um, and, and so that did me kind of in now because I can't get it repaired, right? The muscle just, it, it retracted and it just dissolved and went away, but I have no muscle in the front of the shoulder. So I, I can't lift a lot of weight vertically, but I had a lot of joint pain because of that. Um, a lot of impingement, my fingers would go yeah, down and sleep so. and yeah. yeah, back, my lower back was always fucked up my knees. And 
I've been taking this product now for, you know, going on seven years and I feel like I'm a new man. Mm. I don't have any joint pain. I'm actually lifting. I can't lift a ton of weight, but you got to remember, I went from not being able to lift a five pound dumbbell with my right shoulder. Now I can push press 165 pounds. Yeah. So I don't know what changed, but something changed, right? Yeah. It's amazing to hear those stories where people forego surgery and then they they just sort of, I guess, adapt around it, uh, evolve around it. That's, yeah, I've heard a lot of those stories, but um, the the triple seven, man, let's talk about that a little bit Um, because you were almost immediately in. Like it was, it, we didn't really have to convince you. You're like, yeah, we're in. Yeah. Um, and speak of the sea, I don't know if I've told you, we were, we're about to support six soft guys, three seals. Some of you may know. Um, they're going to row Drake's passage yeah, uh, from intense. the tip. Yeah. They're like, hey, do you guys want to get on the team? Andy, Nick, and I were like, uh, no, but yeah. we'll support you guys. Yeah. So six guys, a little younger. Um, Drake's passage is the most treacherous stretch of uh, sea. Over 20,000 sailors have been lost and over 800 ships have been uh, sunk and these guys are going to do it in a three. Yeah. Uh, so there's position for three rows and then three guys sleep in the little compartments. So this is going to be insane. Uh, but they're going to train here in Austin with John Wellborn. I don't know if you know John. No. Uh, power athlete. Played uh, eight, you know, 10 years in the, the league, NFL, and then uh, was with CrossFit until he started uh, CrossFit football, mm-hmm. which turned into power athlete. So he's going to be training those guys, but that's insane. But... Um, what was attractive to you about triple seven? Was it just the challenge of it? Yeah, I think, well, it's, it's a challenge. It's the, uh, you know, it's the team itself because you you know, I think that's something that you never lose as a former veteran is that camaraderie working with teammates and you always, you know, the practical reality is you always gravitate to it. Um, you know, it's one thing I used to tell, you know, tell folks because we have a lot of problems with post-combat stress guys getting out. And what I always tell people, the worst thing you can do is go into isolation. And and I and I did the wrong thing. So I ended up buying a house up in the fucking mountains away from civilization, living in a home. And I and people started telling me this, and I really started paying attention to like what I was doing. I was like, you know, fuck, I got a gun in my car. I've got one in fucking drawers throughout my house. I've got one under my fucking pillow. Every time I sit down and watch TV, I'm flipping the blinds down because I don't want somebody looking in on my window. But it was very like I I, I was perpetrating like this really bad behavior. And it's because I just came from downrange where I had 360 degree security around me. I was always wearing body armor, always had a gun. And now I'm being put in this environment. And I remember thinking all the time, you know, there could be a fucking sniper out there. that's going to shoot me through yeah, my house. I think they window. call that overly hyper, uh, hyper uh, vigilant. Yeah, vigilant. It's, yeah, it's weird. And so I finally said, you know what? I, I'm like, you know what? I fucking tore down all my shades one day. I'm like, there's no goddamn sniper out there, and there never will be a fucking sniper outside my window. <laughs> so I started, you know, and what I realized is that uh, it, it, I needed to get back into that camaraderie. I needed to, to hang out and be with, whether it's art. I mean, my preference was obviously guys in our community, but it, it, at the very least, it was about just getting back into society and being part of society. The isolation is what's going to kill you. <laughs> and uh, you're getting back into skydiving as well. Did you end up ordering uh, a rig? I no, not yet. Because I guess uh, ten to twelve months. It's well, but you already have the parachute because yeah. we had the Frog Fuel two ten, yeah. which yeah. I think Fred was uh, yeah. jumping. Um, yeah, so I'm going to see if I can talk to Fred about leasing one or just using a rig. But the, the, that industry is so behind right now. I know it's crazy. Um, the, the the best route is Fred or, or guys like Nick. 
Yeah, and it's everywhere. It's not just through him. I mean, I, I went down to Spaceland, uh, and they're saying even to just get a, a suit is 10 to 12 months. Yeah. It's crazy. So I don't know what's going on. I mean. Supply chain. Uh, and, and there's only a few major manufacturers in the uh, the space. Yeah. And they're all competing for the same uh, uh, sources. <clears throat> but, no, 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 it is, it's, yeah. I, so I just found out today that my 260 Mm-hmm. We, I got a 260 with D-rings, mm-hmm. so that you can jump ruck, rucksacks and a, a rifle. Yeah. Uh, 260 for the, the audience is a little larger, um, but that's complete. So we just oh, got to cool. get a parachute nice. uh, now. A, a canopy for uh, for the 260, but everything is complete. The containers nice. are the hardest problem. Yeah, That's the, the containers and the cypress system. So you're going to jump a 260 with... with well, no, no, no. I, I'll, I'll jump a 260 when we're in the mountains yeah. or high altitude or okay. jumping into a hunting trip. So we, we're yeah. this is what we're gearing up to, and uh, I don't want to... You know, right now, I, I know we're going to make this happen with Adam LaRoche, mm-hmm. uh, who will met uh, 12 years in the MLB, mm-hmm. now doing, uh, you know, human trafficking. Mm-hmm. He got deputized and then also was a task force uh, officer in uh, Kansas. But um, we're going to try to uh, do extreme uh, hunting, That's jump cool. into a hunt on his yeah. ranch. Uh, Andy, myself, Nick, uh, probably Tanneman and uh, Adam, mm-hmm. maybe a friend. And then just, you know, it's a proof of concept. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's where we want to go. Uh and then, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it there. we got a few other things on the table. But um, no, without your support for, for 777 and a couple sponsors uh, along the same lines, we would not have been able to, uh, to do that. And I know you guys supplied us to the, uh, to the hilt with, uh, with plenty of protein. Um, our guy's still hitting you up. Like, hey, can I get that? I, I haven't actually heard anything from anybody in a while. The only person I talked to is actually Fred. It just seems like everybody went back to, like, isolation so it's kind of it's kind of weird. It got real quiet, it, and it did. And, and we've actually talked about this. And, and yeah. when you, I mean, the guys were on cloud nine. Mm-hmm. You know, we of course the guys. There's personalities. We didn't all agree, but we were aligned on the mission, and we got it done. And there was a sense of accomplishment. But then when guys went back, it was a realization that you've lost that brotherhood again, in a sense. Yeah. And I think there was a little bit of depression. Some guys shot me. They're like, "Hey, I feel a little off." I'm like, "Hey, I feel the same way." Yeah. And then uh, in terms of sleep cycle, so we're gonna have Chris, uh, Kristen. And Finn, uh, on from Whoop, yeah. to talk. Have you seen the uh, the data yet? No, huh? So it's, we're going to release the uh, the data. Uh, we'll, we'll release it in Men's Journal about how it, how long it took for guys to recover. But I'll be honest, I still have not recovered onto a sleep cycle. Uh, I was off, and then about a week and a half after, uh, I started falling asleep from about <clears> like eight, nine, ten until about two in the morning, and then I just can't go back to sleep. Wow! So it's been a little rough. Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, and it probably didn't help that your. Uh, you guys were flying commercial to coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, – I'm not going to try to decipher this, but we'll, we'll have Kristen, uh, Kristen on as well as Finn, and they'll explain it. But uh, this was pretty interesting data oh, wow. from what she told me. And you saw it. I mean, you go, go down a little. Well, you got uh, Antarctica 1-9, yeah, which crazy. is, remember, we had a stage out of Antarctica, so guys got back on the baseline. Yeah. But you see right when you hit Chile how that – completely changes, yeah. Yeah. You see where we got sleep in Abu Dhabi and how it sort of reset the guys because we did get about... But no REM sleep, just light sleep. No. Yeah, it's weird. Very little. Very little. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so we'll, we'll publish that. Um, where do you go forward with uh, with frog fuel and protein, or do you just stick with those core products because they're so essential? No, we, we're going to... We, we actually have a long laundry list of products we want to develop, but, you know, it's one of the things that... Uh, you know, so we have a good board of directors like Mike Janky and a few others on there. And, you know, I was always the type of guy that likes the new shiny object. 
And so for me, I always got distracted easily. I want to do the next thing, do the next product. But what I realized over time is that all these things were a distraction. And what I needed to do is keep my circle about an inch wide, but go about a mile deep. And so it was about three years, three years ago, I just got the team together and said, listen, we need, we're going to discontinue these two products because they don't align with our core products right now. It's a whole different type of marketing. It's a different audience. And I said, let's just pull everything in and let's just focus on one aspect of the market. And since we've done that, I mean, we, our growth has been tremendous. And it, you know, it is something that Mike had, Mike had, uh, Mike Janke, you know, because I've been friends with him a long time. And I saw that same thing with him where, you know, he had the focus and started sock and then he started doing all these other things. But what I noticed is all these other little things he was doing, they were all failing and he was losing money. And, and so what he ended up doing is he's just like, you know what, I'm just going to run this one company until I make my hundreds of millions of dollars and then I'll do something else. And, yeah. and he yeah. did, and he's, he's, he's been crushing it. So it really told me it's the same thing. One could argue you, you're just running one company. I am, but you know, for every product you create, it's a different audience that you're trying to sell it to. It, it's your, now you're pulling resources from marketing, you're pulling resources from your sales team. And so, you know, since we've had market focus, our average growth rate's been about 120% year over year as, as compared to about 25, 30%. So it's a huge change, massive change. And now what I feel like is, you know, once we get to be a major brand like a Red Bull uh, and we're in all the Walmarts, then line extensions are fine because I already have shelf space and yeah. there's already brand awareness because it's still going to be frog fuel. It's still going to be protein gold, but people at that point are going to know it's a trusted brand and be willing to try other products. And I don't really have to try so hard to market the additional products. So I think that's, that is a valuable lesson for the, the audience. And, and I don't want to say that uh, I'm able to speak uh, from this position, uh, given how much shit I have on my plate, but say that again, an inch wide in a mile deep in a mile deep, which is to say, become so freaking good at one thing. And I know there's a great book, The Power of One. Become so good at one thing. Yeah. Become the subject matter expert. Or if you want to look at it as a, as a bullseye. Yeah. As a company, fill that bullseye up to the brim yeah. until you move on. Your, your core product, your core service, before you ever move on to anything else. Yeah, and I think it's a lot like, you know, it, it does directly translate from the teams too because, you know, one way to look at the teams is we're jack of all trades, master of none. But, but that's perception because you get good at all these little things. But the second you get that mission profile, you're rehearsing, you're rehearsing, you're rehearsing, and you're rehearsing until you've figured out every other what if and every other contingency. So that way when you go on that, by the time you get on that op, you're a fucking expert, right? You've, you've had all that focus to complete that one mission, and then you move on to the next, and you do the same thing over and over and over again. And I think that's how kind of the teams relates to business is we have the versatility um, to – do a lot of things, but we do have to focus on that one mission to make sure that we're successful with it. Yeah. So, you know, another way I took that was as a whole, uh, jack of all trades, master of none, is we were never the best in the world or anything. Mm -hmm. And and the interesting thing for the, again, the listeners is the best snipers in the world are not military snipers. Mm -hmm. They're civilian. And I remember going to McMillan Sniper School in Phoenix, where it was like uh, four SEALs, uh, I brought the guys, three others, uh, and then all these police snipers, and they wiped the table with us. Yeah. Why? Because they had a mandate to fire something like 100 rounds per month. Yeah. Where you and I, I were you a sniper? Yeah. 
where we would you know become really good within two weeks of training, and yeah. then we wouldn't touch the gun for yeah. another three months. But we did have people that were experts within certain, uh, certain fields, which had this beauty. I, I think you know we we call it dynamic subordination. If you're the breacher, when we have a breaching scenario, regardless of rank. Right. We're all following Alex. And yeah. if I could be the, the strike force commander, I'm, I'm the, uh, the troop commander. You're like, get the fuck out of the way. Go hold security over there. And what do I do? I go hold security yeah. over there because you're in charge yeah. uh, at this moment. And there was a beauty to that. Um, but yeah, I do remember getting tasked with missions that were just, were not our subject matter expertise, but we yeah. would just rehearse for six months. Absolutely. And, and then, yeah, yeah those, those skills degrade after one month. Yeah. I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, you know, really the versatility in a company is it, we have the versatility that we know enough about each of the different department capabilities like finance, accounts payable, accounts receivable, marketing, yeah. and yes. stuff like that, yeah. that we know enough to know how to run those departments and how to structure them. But by no means am I going to be the person getting into that system doing the fucking bookkeeping because I don't know how to do it. But if I did want to do it, then I would focus on that one specific skill set and learn it and be good at it and then move on to the next. So, you know, for me... You know, having somebody like Mike as a mentor and Daniel and a few others, I mean, I, I, I got to see it, you know, because I always have this vision. What you don't think of is, like, these guys have hundreds of millions of dollars, and you see them doing all this shit. You're like, I can fucking do that, too. So I remember the first thing I did is I drew out this structure of a holding company and all these mm-hmm. entities under mm-hmm. it. So the funny thing is, when I started the clothing company, I had also started Frog Fuel, I was also working with a group that we were actually doing diamond mining in Africa. And so we were importing diamonds. And yeah, I mean, all of them could have been fucking lucrative. But what I realized is every one of those things I was doing was distracting me from something else. And I had to yeah. take resource time. And that's when I you know, went to the clothing company. My brother and sister I said, listen, I'm done. I, you, know, you guys are doing a great job with it. You take it. The guys for the diamond thing, I'm like, listen, you know, this is really a distraction here. We got to do all the security. I got to fucking hire people. And then I, you know, everybody's trying to rip me off and I just don't want to fucking deal with it. So I shut that down and I just, you know, for me, I just frog fuel, protein all gold, in. all in. Burn the so, boats. Yep. That's a hard decision, man, because like a diamond thing, I mean, we, we, we would have made about like for per transaction, about $3 million a transaction doing about 30 transactions a year. Made a shit ton of money. But what you don't realize is all the work and effort because everybody's trying to fucking rip you off. Everybody's trying to steal from you. And you got to have these huge security details and you got to go through all these regulatory approval process. Um, and it's just, to me, it just wasn't, it wasn't worth it. I that's, that's the, uh, for Will, that's the cost of doing business overseas is, you know, you have your expense sheet and one yeah. of the line, line items would literally be, uh, you know, some people would call it fudge, yeah. like 50,000 for bribes yeah. and, and everything yeah. else. Yeah. It's just, it's the way it works over there, especially... When I started to get into the maritime industry uh, on the military side, uh, I learned that is a racket as oh, yeah. well. Everyone's trying to yeah. rip you off uh, by just jacking the price up on diesel or whatever, uh, mo gas, whatever it is. But um, it, and I think it's worth mentioning. So Mike Jenke, uh, former Navy SEAL, and that's what I love about you guys. Both enlisted, both you know created and ran highly successful companies, and it goes to show the caliber of the guys. People are like, oh well, you know, was he an officer? I'm like, no. Yeah. He wasn't. And trust me, in our community, that doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. I would remember, so when I was a strike force commander or a troop commander, uh, you know, really 25 core guys, I had a bachelor's degree and like five of them or six of them had master's degrees. Yeah. And what was even more uh, amazing is we'd get back from a target at like 6 a.m. and we'd debrief for an hour and the guys would go knock out three hours of their master's online 
Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Yeah, I'm like, I don't know how they can do it. Uh, It took everything in my power just to be good at my job uh, without adding one more thing to the plate. But as well as Daniel, I always screw up Daniel's last name. Who was the founder of Shopify. Yeah. uh, Is on your board as well, two two heavy hitters. But uh, for those that didn't know, when we did 777, there's a reason we went coach. We didn't want a private plan. Everyone's like, oh, just get a private plan. We're like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. This isn't, you know, this isn't a luxurious trip. We don't want it to be a luxurious trip. And the optics on that would look awful. And even when I told guys we were going to fly commercial, I think it was Glenn. He's like, well, okay, so we're flying first class. I'm like, no, dude, we're flying, we're flying economy to keep cost as low as possible so that every dollar we can, we, we, we make can go to folds of honor for, for scholarships. But when we ran into or landed flying from Santiago to Miami, an hour and a half before we landed in Miami, the NOTAM system went down. Yeah. I'm forgetting what day this is. Asked, yeah, I think January 11th or something. First time the NOTAM system has gone down since 9-11. Yeah. And so when we land, and we turn no, on our phones. there's no airplanes taken off of that system. All flights, uh, all flights grounded. Yeah. And so when we land, we turn on our phones. Uh, you know, the bloop, 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 bloop starts popping up from American Airlines. Your flights are canceled. And we still had to knock out that jump in uh, Miami. Uh, actually, skydive Clueston. Um, and we started, we came together and this is what I love about the group too. It was like, okay, this is a problem set. No one's losing their cool about it. What do we do? Guys threw out some exam, uh, some, some ideas. And it was Glenn Cowan, the Canadian said, let me make uh, some phone calls. And he called Mike Janke. He called Daniel and said, Hey, we need some help. Yeah. And so we got, and we flew uh, private for one leg to stay on mission and two good Americans, Mike Janke and Daniel Whedon made that happen. Yeah. with a, uh, a G5, and so we owe them big time. Um, and we'll, we'll make sure we make it up to them. But um, Alex, I, I can't thank you enough for, for going on. What I would say, because um, you're not a sponsor uh, of this podcast, and, and you were a sponsor of 777, is for the audience, here's my challenge. I took two a day. I don't know what your recommendation is, but I yeah. took two, two of the uh, 15 gram yeah. uh, ones uh, plus one of these. So actually that's close to... Uh, uh, 50, uh, 40 grams mm-hmm. uh, of protein through frog fuel. Do it for 30 days, and I guarantee you'll see a difference in your joints. And that's just my unofficial challenge to you guys. If I'm wrong, send Alex and I a note and say you're full of shit. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with that. But it did for me from a guy who has a, uh, a lot of injuries. But, Alex, the way we uh, we end this, man, um, is usually with, with two questions. First off, you've met with a lot of success. I know there was a lot of failure along the way. But what are maybe those three rules, those ground rules, those tenets, whatever you want to call them, that you follow in life that have statistically led to good outcomes? Yeah. So one of my core beliefs is be a leader. Um, And what I mean by that specifically is what you you expect of others, you have to be willing to do yourself. Um, So don't expect others to do something you yourself can't do. And I think that applies from everything from company to your children I mean, I always laugh when, you know, I, I, you know, like I used to go to this climbing wall and I see these parents yelling at their kid to go climb this climbing wall and they're getting mad at their children. And I'm looking at them going like, why don't you get your dumb ass up that wall and go prove to your child you can we do can't, it. can't because right? they're fat. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, the true definition of leadership is important. Um, you know, uh, perseverance absolutely is important for me. Um, uh, qualify that. Yeah, because not, not – it's not always going to work out how you expect it to when you expect it to. And perseverance is, is your willingness um, to push beyond those obstacles to accomplish a goal. 
that's, you know, I think that's very important. And then the other thing I found to be very important for me, um, I don't know if there's one word to say, but that you have this natural instinct that when you know you have to do something, you have to do it. And this happens all the time. This used to happen all the time to me where I'm like, I got to get that thing fucking done. And then I don't do it. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, I got this whole other list of things to do. But then I realized that was the one thing I needed to get done and I had to get done. And so now it's, I, I, regardless of what I have on my plate, I trust my intuition. If something's telling me I got to get that done, I don't waste time. I fucking drop everything else I'm doing and I get that one thing done. You, you know, I heard a quote from Elon Musk, which I liked, and I think it was about entrepreneurship. Uh, and this is what I think he, he was trying to convey is uh, entrepreneurship is like uh, staring down the abyss mm-hmm. while chewing glass. And what he qualified it or quantified it as is a entrepreneur gets the things done that need to get done, not mm-hmm. the things that they traditionally like to do. 100%. I, I talk about this in the book, The Everyday Warriors. Uh, we call this, and it sounds like what you're describing is self-accountability and self-discipline. Yeah. We, we call it get shit done, get the things done that you need to get done that you've been tasked with, make things happen. Don't wait or be passive for things to come to you. Go to, you know, as we say, run to the sound of guns, identify problems, or seize initiatives on behalf of yourself, your organization, and then do it all again tomorrow. And it never stops. And for a CEO, and I always hear it, I always hear a CEO says, if we can just get to, uh, you know, like 5 million EBITDA, we can coast. I'm like, yeah. Let me know how coasting does for you in the organization once you get there. I have no doubt you can get there. And when you let a pedal, yeah, that's yeah. What at the end of the day, man? When it when's all all said and done? Uh, let's say thirty years from now, forty years from now. Um, what do you want your legacy to be, and how? What are you doing to secure that? You know, that's a that's a great question because I had actually thought a lot about that throughout the years, and um, and I'll put it into context. So you know, once I joined that made it in the teams, I realized that I could have anything I wanted in life as long as I focused on it. But what I said at that time is because I didn't really have a lot of nice stuff. So I remember saying, one day I'm going to buy a GT, you know, sports car. It's like a $100,000 car. And then I remember four years went by and I fucking bought it. And then next next time I knew, hey, I want I, at some point I want to buy that $100,000 Ducati motorcycle. And I fucking ended up buying it. But what I realized it, is that I wasn't really creating a lasting legacy. I was just buying, you know, putting value on monetary things. And I was getting them. And I'm like, I said, you know, What's weird about it is I'll just keep continuing down this path and getting things I want, and they, none of these things are going to add any value in my life. And so what I realized for me, my le- what my legacy was, was not about me. It's about helping others be successful. So what, what, how I want to be remembered is that is when I'm in a fucking casket or whatever or burned or depending on how I die, I guess, or end up on the side of a fucking mountain – that's not uh, a, that, that's not a bad way to go. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I always told people, you know, if I've got terminal cancer, I'm not going to fucking sit in a bed and die. I'm going to go climb up Mount Everest with a bottle of water and take off my fucking clothes and pour the water myself and freeze myself up there and just stay there. But, you know, legacy to me is that it, you know, is if if I'm dead and people are in a room, it it's I would love for it to be that the people in the room are like this motherfucker helped me accomplish my goals. And that to me is a legacy. That in, in you've, I know you focus, you can't help everyone. You focused yeah. Yeah. predominantly on helping a lot of team guys. Yeah. And I know that's been your focus and, and you helped us. But it's, to me, it's pay it forward, right? Because you help that one guy, he helps another. It's That person's always going to remember you for, for being the one that helped him. And it's like, you know, all these times people have told me, 
you know, business friends, like, why aren't you charging for fucking consulting? You know, you're helping this person with their company. I'm like, why? Yeah. I mean, why? I said, but because ultimately if he's successful, I'm successful. That's what you don't realize. I don't need anything. It'll pay you tenfold. Yeah, it pays It'll tenfold. pay tenfold. And so I always do that. I mean, occasionally, yeah, you're right. I got to keep my circle small because I still have to focus on inch, what inch I'm doing. Inch wide, mile deep. Inch wide, mile deep. But yeah, I'm, I'm on the, like, technically do, uh, I advise like three or four companies. Yeah, I'm advising three or four right now that are startups, a consumer goods company and two tech companies. And just trying to help them, like, you know, do well with their business, how to scale, how to raise money, how to structure your company. I'm not asking for any money to do that. You know, but at the end of the day, these guys turn out to be billionaires, and I'm happy with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm good with it. You, you mentioned something. Uh, dying on the side of the mountain, there was a TF 160th pilot who just passed away climbing, uh, I'm forgetting what mountain in uh, South America. Oh, shit. But I, I want to say uh, late 60s. Mm-hmm. And um, saw an email chain because he was an ambassador for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, which is a good foundation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, provides yeah. scholarships to, to the kids of the fallen. Yeah. Um, and people are like, Hey, my condolences, this is, this is tragic. And again, it is tragic. And my response to the group was, I'm like, I'm like, Hey, don't, don't get me wrong, but this is fucking awesome. Yeah. I, I said, he is blessed yeah. to go out in that manner. I can only wish at, you know, yeah, hopefully I live a little beyond, but I go out, I, I go out on the side of a mountain yeah. on some expedition surrounded by my brothers and my family. There's yeah. no greater uh, way. He was still pushing. He, he was trying to conquer the mountain. The mountain just conquered him on this one. Yeah. But that's a good way. I mean, the, the, good, the good outlook on life is live life to its fullest. Because if, you know, if you, you know, people talk about dying and not being afraid of dying. And it's my firm belief, adamant belief, that if you're not living life to the fullest, then you're going to be afraid of dying. Because you're going to have, there's going to be a lot of guilt and animosity at the things you could have done and you didn't do. So the point is, do what you want to do, and at the end of the day, you know, when I fucking die, I don't want people feeling sorry for me. I want them to know that I live life to its maximum capacity, and that means helping everybody I can, but also being the best person I can, period. Yes, absolutely. Well, Alex, uh, strong words, be a leader, perseverance, uh, self-discipline and accountability, get the things done that you need to get done, uh, and then ultimately uh, a legacy of helping others to, uh, achieve success. Uh, hey, brother, thanks for coming on. Where can people find you? Frogfuel? Frogfuel.com. Mm-hmm. Or LinkedIn usually is where you, you probably LinkedIn, hang out. yeah, LinkedIn. I'm always up there on my own social media too. Uh, God of Archangels is my call sign. God of Archangels. That's a good one. Well, guys, remember, uh, we are, uh, we're trying to remind our audience, pick up a copy of The Everyday Warrior, which is the basis of this very show in the Men's Journal uh, Everyday Warrior Initiative, a no-hack practical approach to life. Uh, again, this is not my autobiography. This is a, a collection of lessons I learned from watching some of the most amazing men and women who I consider warriors that I served alongside and what I learned from them, not only from foundational building blocks, positive uh, habits, as well as mindsets. Uh, again, and 50% of the proceeds are split between Special Operations Warrior Foundation and Folds of Honor because I'm basically taking the lessons of the fallen, putting it into a book. So that's my way of paying it uh, forward. Uh, You can find that on Amazon. The audio book comes out on March 21st. It has about 30 minutes of exclusive content where I go off script and and give you a little more context that the book doesn't give. So please check it out uh, and support these two communities with uh, your purchase of the uh, the book. All right. This is uh, Mike Sorelli, host of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast. Until next time, be good.